You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I am the host of the show. My name is Jeff Lucas. I'm a land surveyor and attorney at law. We'll be spending the next hour talking about land surveying and land surveyors. Uh, as always, your questions and comments are welcome. Uh, please send them to Jeff at americaswebradio.com. Uh, you can find out more about me at my personal website. That is www.lucasandcompany.com. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here this Monday morning. <clears throat> I'm glad I'm here, too. Uh, last few weeks, we have uh, been discussing uh, cases. Uh, we haven't had a guest uh, since uh, Dr. Jerry Nave came on at the end of July. Uh, somewhat purposeful, uh, it's, um, but not really. I'd, I'd like to have guests on the show. Um, it's um, a little bit difficult finding people who want to come on the show. Uh, without spending a whole lot of time tracking them down. So if you if you have any um, people that you would like to uh, come on the show or you'd like to hear from, uh, let me know. Uh, let us know here at America's Web Radio, and uh, we'll search them out and see if we can get them to come on the show. I do have some people in mind for future dates. Um, I had a guest uh, actually uh, ready to go this week, but... Uh, had some um, something come up and had to cancel, so we, we're postponing that. So we, we're talking to people to get them on the show. But uh, it is it is a show about surveying and land surveyors, and so uh, studying the cases or discussing the cases is uh, is one of the uh, important aspects of uh, of surveying, or at least it should be. At least it sure should be. But as you know. Uh, these last three cases we've gone over, if you've been with us uh, for, uh, let's see, it took us uh, two, four, it took us four weeks to go, uh, four programs to go over uh, two cases uh, because, um, as you as you remember from uh, Lawson versus Weinmiller and Weber versus Kroger, uh, apparently uh, a lot of surveyors have no interest at all and studying case law uh, and understanding uh, the boundary location doctrines um, to um, uh, any degree of uh, proficiency, which is <clears throat> which is really disheartening. I mean, I, I know I know where this comes from. I've been in the business uh, full time um, uh, as a profession since 1976, licensed in 1984. I understand. Uh, the the mindset I understand uh, what um, that a lot of surveyors and this was just totally it was ninety percent of the surveyors back when I got licensed uh, they felt like their only function is to go out there and and measure the mass and put the uh, as as I like to say put the geometry from the deed on the ground in other words do a deed stakeout. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that is not uh, pass muster under the um, the fundamental principles of retracement surveying. We've talked about this time and time again. Uh, the fundamental principles of retracement, so there's only two types of surveyors, an original surveyor 
Now that is a math and measurement task. The, 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 the task being, or the objective being, to as precisely as possible put the geometry from the deed or the geometry from the plat on the ground as precisely as possible. But the, the role of the retracing surveyor is completely different. Our, our, and the only reason we know this, and the only way of knowing this, is you have to study case law. You have to study the common law. A boundary law is highly infused with court cases. And, and this is not taught to young surveyors. It's not taught that, uh, that, that I don't even think, I'm not sure, and I should have asked some of our guests in the past, do, do they, um, especially uh, like Dr. Jerry Nave and, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> And uh, Dr. Bill Hazelton at Troy University and Dr. Nave at North Carolina A&T University. Are they teaching these kids any, how to do legal research? Because that was the eye-opening event for me when I went to law school, having had a 20-year career as a land surveyor under my belt and, uh, and practicing as if I was an expert measurer and the only thing to do is to go out and expertly measure the geometry from the deed. So I understand where these people are coming from. I understand um, the, the mindset. Uh, and as I've said on many occasions, I was the world's worst. I was the world's worst until I finally went to law school. And one of the reasons I went to law school was because of uh, this issue. Of, I did not understand. Uh, why I was setting monuments in the ground right next to perfectly good monuments that had already been there for 20 years or, or more. Uh, I didn't understand why I was doing it, but that seems to be what I was taught to do. And uh, so there was a lot of confusion. There is a lot of confusion in uh, in the education of surveyors in the, uh, in the art of retracement surveying. It's not about the measurements. It's not it's the, the measurements... Measurements are only evidence and not the best available evidence. And we're going to look at another case today. And I guess that's the theme of this case. What is, what is the best available evidence? What is the best available evidence? The land surveying profession, for all of these various and sundry reasons, is a measure-centric profession. And the reason for that is... The surveyors can check their measurements. They can check their measurements. It, it's called a closure. You can run a closure. Uh, that's an error rate. If you're, if you're doing traditional traversing, that's an error ratio. Uh, it's, um, you, you run around a, a property boundary uh, with a traverse where you're not always on the property lines, and you uh, come back to your starting point. You turn a closing angle. And you uh, adjust out the error and the angles, and you run a compass rule adjustment or whatever adjustment you're going to run where it, <clears throat> it takes the errors out, and you, you get a ratio, uh, a, a precision ratio of so many feet, you know, uh, per hundred or per thousand that you're, that you're off. Um, so you can, and while well, we don't even, with GPS, we don't, we're not even really doing that now. Uh, although some standards practice uh, still have error ratios uh, in there uh, as their requirements for uh, figuring your error ratio, 
on your closed traverse when, um, well, I guess generally speaking, uh, people uh, using uh, surveyors using GPS aren't necessarily running traditional closed loops. Although they can check with redundant measurements, they can check their um, uh, their um, uh, precision. Uh, they can check their precision on their uh, on their measurements and get a comp- you know at a confidence level and get uh, some kind of idea how how good the measurements are. But anyway, uh, not not straying too far away from the subject here. Uh, the point is. Um, Surveyors have been measure cent. It's, it's a measure centric profession because from the very beginning, uh, it was all about measurements, being expert measurers, and uh, then uh, you can check your measurements. So you have an idea if your measurements are accurate measurements. Okay, if they're accurate, meaning are they correct? So if your focus is on measurements, then accuracy has to do with your measurements. But the, if the focus isn't measurements, then an accurate survey is something completely different. And this is, uh, and, and this is a problem as well, because uh, surveyors, a lot of surveyors don't really understand what it means to have an accurate survey. A, an accurate survey is where you get correct results. And the measurements... Um, don't, just because you get a good closure on your measurements does not mean you measured the correct piece of property. Uh, you, you, may have, you may have measured the wrong piece of property, and therefore your survey results are completely inaccurate. And we, we discussed that a few weeks back when we were discussing the uh, Alta NSP, uh, NSPS um, uh, uh, land title uh, survey requirements. They've actually made the distinction now in those requirements. They've made the distinction between precise measurements and accurate results. And some surveyors still haven't gotten the message. An accurate survey is a survey that has correctly located the subject property on the ground. Measurements are just a part of that process. And it's the measurements are mere evidence and, generally speaking, the lowest form thereof. Now, you can't. There is no mathematical formula. There's no mathematical formula for checking if you have correct results on a survey. To checking, in other words, this in the final analysis, just like any professional, doctor, lawyer, um, uh, surveyor. Um, all the professional has, the, the stock and trade of the professional is an opinion. When you go to your doctor, all you're going to get is an opinion. In the final analysis, all you're getting, all you're paying for is an opinion on your health situation. When you go to your attorney, all you're paying for is an opinion on your legal situation. When you go to a surveyor, you should be getting an opinion on the only question that's open to the surveyor, and that is the location of your property lines on the ground. Now, here's the problem, and it's a dilemma for a lot of surveyors. This is it's a dilemma for a lot of surveyors. How do you check to see if your opinion is correct or most probably correct? There's no guarantee on an opinion. Your doctor doesn't give you a guarantee on his opinion. Your lawyer doesn't give you a guarantee on her opinion. It's just an opinion. 
that it all that it, it, that most probably is correct. If 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 it's done, if the process is done correctly, then um, the opinion is most probably correct. And that kind of goes back to the uh, evidence standards when you go to court. What in civil court? Uh, what? Uh, is the the evidence standard for for winning in civil court? It's a preponderance of the evidence that leads to the facts in the case. The preponderance of the evidence, more than fifty percent of the evidence. You don't you don't have to make a one hundred on the test. All you have to do is make a fifty one, and um, most probable. So um, uh, there is no there is no mathematical formula for checking. A professional opinion, but there is a litmus test. There is a litmus test uh, whereby you can have a pretty good idea. You can have a pretty good idea if you're the opinion that you derive, your well-reasoned opinion that you derived as a land surveyor on the location of your property lines on the ground. If if it's most the most probable correct, or it's not, or, or it's something less than that. Okay, and we'll get into that litmus test uh, after after the break. We got a break coming up here in about twenty or thirty seconds. But um, so uh, remember uh, to uh, we're looking for your uh, your questions and comments. Send them in, and uh, don't forget to check me out on uh, at www.lucasandcompany.com. And uh, we'll be back and talk about the litmus test uh, for correct results when we come back after this break. And we want to remind everybody that this should be a very good day to call Quick Stakes and order your markers. That's Quick Stakes, and uh, you can order your Quick Stakes as well at 1-800-438-0387. And uh, you'll love them. Absolutely, and they uh, let everybody know that this is a survey marker. Don't remove it. So with that being said, we'll play one of their spots, and uh, we'll go from there. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Steaks, your back-friendly steak. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you.
you have to understand, the surveyor has to understand, is what the is what the uh, the standard of care is for the practicing uh, professional. And the standard of care in the United States of America pretty much applies to every profession out there. And it is the reasonably prudent practitioner standard. What the reasonably prudent practitioner would do under like or similar circumstances. That's the standard of care. And why is that important? We've discussed this before because uh, the four elements of negligence are you owe a duty, um, you fell below the duty, you broke the duty, you fell below the standard of care. The duty is the standard of care. As a professional practitioner, the duty is the reasonably prudent practitioner standard. What the reasonably prudent practitioner would do in like or similar circumstances. The four elements of negligence. You owed a duty to the plaintiff, you the practitioner. Uh, you fell below the duty. You fell below the standard of care. Uh, causation. Because you fell below the standard of care, damages. All four of those elements have to be proven. So the standard of care is critical because uh, the surveyor really has no control over, uh, in, in many cases, over whether or not the duty of care was owed to the plaintiff. Many ca- it will be if it's your client. It's a guarantee. That's a that's that's a dead you know dead rights. You owe a duty of care to your client. <clears throat> uh, a few questions might come in when we start discussing the next door neighbor. Okay, and it depends on the jurisdiction you're in, the various and sundry jurisdictions. Jurisdiction. So, in other words, whether you owed a duty of care to the plaintiff is somewhat out of your control as a practitioner. Uh, causation. If you did something wrong, um, I mean, everybody makes mistakes, so you made a mistake. Um, it caused da- The mistake caused damages. Uh, there you go. There's those three. El- you can't control those three elements. And you might as well figure if you're getting sued as a practitioner, if you're getting sued, they're probably, they're probably have a good good idea uh, or, or they, they think it, well we found out in Lawson versus Weinmiller the attorney had no no clue what the elements of negligence was but um, you, you might as well go ahead and think that they're going to prove you owed a duty and you're not in court for no reason unless it's a frivolous lawsuit so there will be causation and generally speaking, uh, the you might as well go ahead and figure that the plaintiff is going to be damaged in some way. If not, they're, they're probably not filing a lawsuit if they're not damaged in some way. Maybe if it's not just if it's just not trying to get their attorney's fees back. The attorney's fees can be very very damaging. So um, the only thing under the surveyor's control is whether or not the surveyor was practicing at or above the standard of care, or let's put it this way, below the standard of care. If you're practicing below the standard of care, they have to prove all four elements. They have to prove all four elements. So if you're practicing below the standard of care, you're on your way to negligence. Um, If they can't prove that you fell below the standard of care, there's no way they can prove uh, negligence. Because you have to have all four elements. So you can make a mistake as a practitioner, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a, as a surveyor. You can make a mistake and not be negligent. The, the law doesn't require perfection. 
So ultimately, in any boundary decision that a surveyor makes, it's ultimately important. It is critically important that the surveyor know where he or she stands relative to the standard of care in the community. If you're always operating above the standard of care, you can never, by definition, you can never be negligent. And so what are the damages if they can't prove negligence? There are no damages if they can't prove negligence. Now, you may be damaged because you had to hire a lawyer and go in and defend yourself, and you're not going to get that money back, more than likely. You're not going to get that money back. You may have been damaged. There's exceptions. We had Jim Miller on a few weeks ago. Okay, He got all his money back uh, for a frivolous lawsuit. But that was because, how do you get your money back? How do you get your money back in court? You get your money back if you have a contract, if there's a statute or a rule somewhere, court made a court rule somewhere uh, that says you can get your money back, or the court made rule if Actor A, because of the actions of actors B and C, has to come in and defend herself and then wins. This is a court made rule, not universal, and wins. Then in that case, in many cases, Actor A, the plaintiff, gets um, uh, gets her her uh, damages and gets her money back in damages. Okay, and what happened in Mentor's case? There was a statute. There was a safe harbor statute. They filed a frivolous lawsuit against them. They filed a frivolous lawsuit against them, and um, they brought in the safe harbor. Uh, they brought in the safe harbor statute and. Uh, sanctions. Sanctions will get your money back. And they got money. They got the money back uh, on this frivolous lawsuit. Actually, they didn't get it back on the safe harbor thing, but that's that's neither here nor there. But he got his money back. So uh, there are ways to get your money back, but there's only about three of them. Three ways to get your money back. So ultimately, it is, it is crit- critically important that the practitioner, any practitioner, any professional practitioner, Understand where they stand in relation to the standard of practice. What other reasonably prudent practitioners in like or similar circumstances are going to do? And how do you know what that is? How do you know? Well, there's only a couple of ways to know. First, experience. Being in the community long enough. Understanding what other surveyors are doing and not doing. What the best practitioners are doing. And what the worst practitioners are doing. And you, you generally get this kind of information by going to the conferences and local chapter meetings and by talking to your colleagues over the phone and discussing surveying, having lunch with other surveyors, well, all this stuff we can't do these days. But anyway, um, uh, that's how you find out what the what the standard is in the community. So if you did not, if, even if you made a mistake, if you did not fall below the standard of care, you, by definition, you cannot be negligent. So you're going to need make sure you got a good lawyer that's going to be able to... And how are you going to establish that in court? That gets established through expert witness testimony. Expert witnesses come in, and they have to say, remember Juan Miller, Lawson versus Juan Miller? Remember Cosmer and Petskowitz? They didn't pull the trigger on, on Juan Miller. They didn't testify that he... They testified he made a mistake... They didn't testify that he was negligent. And when Weinmiller and his son got on got on the stand and testified, they actually 
uh, proved that they had gone above and beyond the standard of care when they performed their survey. And, and in that case, the only the only surveyors who knew anything about uh, the boundary location doctrines uh, and boundary retracement were from the testimony we got. I've never met Mr. Weinmuller. I've, I've never met Ms., well. I met Mr. Cosler. Never met Mr. Pesquitz. But according to the opinion, uh, the Weinmullers were the only ones who understood understood boundary loca- the boundary location doctrines in that case. Okay. And then, of course, Weber versus Kroger the last couple of weeks. Oh, please. Uh, a Kroger surveyor couldn't even explain one principle of retracement that he had employed in making his bad determination, his incorrect, what did the judge say? What did the judge, his not correct, the survey was not credible. He had no credibility in court. None. And that's what it's all about, credibility. You've got to keep that in mind, too, when you're thinking about your litmus test. Credibility. So what is our litmus test? First of all, you've got to understand the standard of care, what the reasonably prudent practitioner would do under like or similar circumstances. Next thing you've got to understand is evidence. And, and the evidence that you are to what gather and weigh and in boundary location um, retracement work, it's best available evidence. Remember, that's the theme of this case coming up, best available evidence. And then the final part of the litmus test, if you can explain, which Kroger's surveyor couldn't, if you can explain uh, the, the boundary location uh, doctrines, that you employed in in rendering your what I like to call a well-reasoned opinion on the location question, where the property is located on the ground, then you have more than likely, in all probability, you have the correct answer. So here's the litmus test: get uh, the the sur- rendering a. Rendering a well-reasoned opinion, the surveyor is seeking to render a well-reasoned opinion on the only question open to the surveyor, the location question, by gathering and evaluating the best available evidence that any other reasonably prudent practitioner would gather and evaluate in like or similar circumstances, weighing that evidence, rendering a well-reasoned opinion on the only question open to the surveyor, the location question, and then being able to explain on the face of the survey the boundary location doctrine that's being applied. If you can do that, in all probability, you have the correct answer. That's the litmus test. There's no mathematical formula. And what is the best available evidence? Is it the measurements? In most cases, no. And in the vast majority of cases, it's not. Evidence of uh, uh, measurements, uh, angles and distances, are the, and acreage are the lowest form of evidence. What is the best, the highest form of evidence? The highest form of evidence are the original monuments in the ground when the property was first uh, conveyed out of a common grantor. That's the best and highest available evidence. In the, in the public land survey system, it is the GLO uh, monuments that the surveyors put on the ground. The best and highest evidence of the location of the property on the ground. What happens when the co- monuments come up missing? 
well, when the best, when the highest form of evidence, the monuments come up missing, then we have to look at the next best available evidence. And what is the next best available evidence? Well, that's what this case is, is all about. Okay, folks, we'll get into that after the break. <clears throat> Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. And that reminds me to uh, tell everyone that uh, we have fantastic programming here at America's Web Radio. The Doctor's Lounge. We've got the Classic Car Show on Saturdays. We've got so many different various uh, subjects and programs that you'll love. Just listen to them. And uh, like the Land Surveying Show that you can go back. We archive all of our shows. And uh, we have... um, a veteran's story. We have uh, remembering Desert Storm and Desert Shield with our own general who has been called back up, as a matter of fact. In fact, we have uh, two of our hosts have been called back up. Uh, general Dix was called back up to uh, man the logistics of the pandemic, while our other host, uh, Sandy Bostick, has been called back up by Homeland Security because uh, they needed his talents. So, but with that being said, we still have a bunch of great shows on America's Web Radio. And want to remind you one more time, this would be a good time, great time, to order your quick stakes. 1-800-438-0387. Order your markers or quick stakes, and it's time to get back. I, oh, my goodness. Jeff Lucas has given me that evil eye that it's time. So we're coming back to Jeff. Okay, uh, welcome back. I don't know anything about an evil eye. Uh, I'm just I'm looking with uh, fondness at our as our producer here, and great respect. Uh, okay, uh, so um, we're talking about um, again. Uh, we are going through, we're going to look at a case here, and we've been going through cases, uh, a couple of cases the last couple of weeks, uh, which is ultimately uh, critical uh, for understanding retracement surveying. This is another case out of Tennessee. I'm not trying to pick on Tennessee, but I have some great Tennessee cases. Uh, Weber versus Kroger uh, was a great one. Um, Weber versus, uh, sorry, had a little... Uh, uh, technicality going on there. Uh, Weber versus um, um, Kroger was a good Tennessee case. I think we did another one, didn't we? Yeah, Dowdell versus Cotham, another great case. Uh, all these cases we've gone over uh, since I've been doing the program. Dowdell versus Cotham, uh, Lawson versus Miller, Ohio case, Weber versus Kroger, and now Dillahay versus Gibbs. There is a severe lack of understanding 
of retracement principles on the part of at least one surveyor or the other, and then sometimes, in some cases, more than one surveyor. Uh, and there's usually there's usually the, uh, one side. Well, in Dowdell versus Cotham, uh, the Cothams didn't even get a surveyor, so uh, Dowdell, the plaintiff's uh, surveyor, was completely out to lunch, didn't have a clue. Lawson versus Wine Miller, we had four surveyors come into court. The Wine Millers uh, were the only ones who could uh, cogently um, explain boundary retracement doctrine. Uh, the other two surveyors, um, uh, not so much. Weber versus Kroger, uh, we had two surveys in that case. Uh, one, we didn't. It was a 2011 survey. Uh, we didn't. Uh, we didn't know who that surveyor was because uh, Kro- uh, Kroger surveyor came along. The defendant surveyor came along in 2016, accepted that erroneous survey that and could not explain the boundary retracement doctrines being employed in, in holding that erroneous survey. Um, and, and in actuality, the contractor who measured between the the old ancient foundations uh, was the one credited with finding the quote-unquote, in that case, quote-unquote, historic boundary between the two properties. In this case, we're going to have three surveyors um, two surveyors um, basically um, either don't understand retracement theory, don't understand rules of evidence, uh, don't under or, or just um, well, I, I, I'm just going to say they don't understand or don't know. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that uh, as we come to it. So let's get a little bit, uh, bit of background information here. This uh, this case is uh, Dillahay versus Gibbs. It's a 2011 uh, Tennessee Court of Appeals case. And so I'm going to read a little bit from the case here so we can set the scene. This is a boundary dispute case between owners of two farms in the hollows of Smith County, Tennessee. I'm thinking that's snuffy, actually snuffy Smith County. Uh, well, okay, that reference is probably unfair. Um, the plaintiff appellant, uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs. Dillhay, Plaintiff means she filed at the trial court level. She was the plaintiff. Appellant means that uh, um, means that she's the one who appealed. She lost the case at uh, at the trial court level, and now she, and she's appealing uh, that she lost. And this, is, of course, is a is an appellate court opinion we're reading. This, but it's about the trial that happened, as we know. Uh, she filed her complaint in the Chancery Court in uh, January 20, 2007, seeking to establish the boundary line between the two farms. Okay, Chancery Court, that's not a law court. Just like the probate courts aren't law courts, it's an equity court. And generally, we've talked about this before, boundary dispute cases are not legal cases, unless you're trying the title. And in this case, even in this case, there was an adverse possession claim, Blah blah blah. But anyway, the uh, the Chancery Court had jurisdiction, uh, and and since the I think the boundary was determined uh, on other issues besides adverse possession, uh, you know the the court uh, the court was upheld uh, in this appellate court. The Chancery Court was upheld in this appellate court decision. Uh, and, and that's a, that's another thing that you need to understand in these boundary dispute cases. 
is uh, you go hire yourself a lawyer in a boundary dispute. You're either defending or you're prosecuting, or maybe you're a surveyor involved, and um, and you need your own attorney. Here's the thing to understand. Um, 99% of the time, this is, okay, Jeff's anecdotal evidence. 95 to 99% of the, t- uh, of the time, it, they aren't, in actuality, when you get down to the end and you've, you've gone through all of... Uh, uh, all of the facts in the case, uh, they aren't adverse possession cases, boundary dispute cases, aren't necessarily adverse possession cases, but they get, they turn into adverse possession cases because the attorneys prosecuting and defending the case, like many surveyors, do not understand the principles of boundary location. We've gone over the principles of boundary location. By the way, I've, I've called them for several years now. I called them the boundary establishment doctrines, and I'm coming off of that because actually, when I wrote my pincushion book, I didn't call them the boundary establishment doctrines. Somewhere along the way, I decided to call them the boundary establishment doctrines. Doing uh, doing seminar presentations and such, and uh, at the beginning of this year, or late last year, a guy came up to me at the break and said, "Why are you calling these the boundary establishment doctrines?" I said. Well, I mean, that's just a good term for him. He said, well, that isn't what you said in the pincushion book. You called them the location doctors. And, you know, I went back and thought about that. He's right. That guy was right. Because, um, and especially with this recent run-in I've had with the NCAAS uh, over the definition of surveying, I've, I've made the point, at least in my mind, crystal clear that bound, that surveyors don't establish anything. So boundaries are not established by surveyors. Boundaries are established through the actions and inactions, the activity and inactivity of the landowners. That's how boundaries become established on the ground. Now, you will hear and you will see in some court cases, and especially when they talk about the original surveyor and the retracement surveyor, surveyors establishing boundaries. Well, in actual, in, in, when you drill down to the nuts and bolts, that's not that's not what what's happening. Even with an original surveyor, original surveyor establishes nothing. Original surveyor laying out original lines for the very first time in a subdivision and put those monuments in the ground. Sorry, surveyor, that guy is only a tool, just a tool. The surveyor establishes nothing. You say, well, Jeff, yes, he does establish those points. Okay, then explain, Then riddle me this, Batman. If the surveyor, if that original surveyor blunders and everybody then goes into reliance on the blunder and it's discovered years later that the original surveyor blundered, what is the, what is the fundamental principle of retracement surveying? follow in the footsteps of the original surveyor not to correct them um, if the surveyor if the original surveyor establishes boundaries um, according to the plat then why do we honor a blunder then he didn't establish it correctly we honor the blunder because of the activities and the inactivities of the landowners. It is the landowners 
to establish boundaries. So I've corrected myself, and thank you, sir. I forgot what your name was. Um, caught me at the break, but uh, yes, I'm changing. I'm changing that um, on all my slides and all my future presentations. It's it's not the boundary establishment documents. Yes, boundaries do get established through. Uh, in, in some instances through the efforts surveyors put in like when the original surveyor goes out and lays out the original lines but that's not how they get established they get established through the activities and inactivities of landowners through reliance recognition acquiescence of the landowners in other words the monuments put in the ground are just and Today's today there's going to be a piece of steel. Generally speaking, most surveyors are using uh, uniform type monuments instead of just anything they can get their hands on. Like in, in the past, you know, buggy axles and uh, oh, I've, I've seen a wrench in concrete, uh, a crescent wrench in concrete. Uh, you know, seen all kinds of things uh, ostensibly representing monuments. Pretty much these days. It's either you're using a, a steel pipe of some diameter, or you're using a rebar of some diameter, and you got to, generally speaking, you got to put a cap on it, and that cap has an identification, uh, identification of the surveyor or the, or the survey company. So monuments are, are pretty much a uniform these days, uh, in that they'll either be steel pipes or steel uh, or steel rebar even though the term iron pen or iron pipe is still used, but technically speaking, they aren't made of iron, they're made of steel, but that's neither here nor there. But um, um, the through the acquiescence, acceptance, and reliance by the landowners, do those pieces of steel, initially when an original surveyor puts those pieces of steel in the ground, that's all they are. They're just pieces of steel. When do they become a monument? They become a monument, and, and a blunder becomes correct after a certain amount of time has gone by, and reliance has set in on those monuments. And when that, on those pins, on those steel pins or steel pipes, and when that happens, they're transformed from just a piece of steel in the ground to a monument. Because when that happens, the property lines attach. Uh, or the property rights attach to the lines between those monuments, and that's what turns them into property lines. That's what turns them into property lines. And the, the the fundamental principle of retracement, surveying, there's a litmus test. We talked about that, the, whether you're correct or not, or most probably correct. But the fundamental principle of surveying, retracement surveying, is to find where the lines become established on the ground. It's generally said where the original surveyor, following in the footsteps of the original surveyor where, where that original surveyor put the lines on the ground, put the monuments on the ground, and then there's lines between the, the monuments. But it's deeper than that. It's where the boundary lines become established on the ground. That is the fundamental principle of retracement surveying. 
and measurements only play a role, a very minor role, um, in in this whole process, in the retracement process. So it's gathering and evaluating the best evidence, the best available evidence, and um, rendering a well-reasoned opinion uh, on the location of those property lines on the ground. All right. Um, in addition to declaratory relief, uh, Mrs. Dillahay, well, we're gonna we're gonna take a break, folks, and uh, we'll be back uh, in a few minutes. And that break is going to be a live break, reminding everybody that this is a good day to call Parker Davis Quick Steak and order your steaks as well as your markers. You'll love both of them. And the number is, get your pen and paper ready, number is 800-438-0387. And tell them that you appreciate the fact that they sponsor the surveying hour only on america's web radio and they've been doing it now for years and years and we appreciate jeff lucas and the job he does and the cases that he brings to us and he's also had some outstanding guests on over the years so uh let's just make a big thank you to everybody thank uh thank you parker davis for your great quick stakes and markers and thank jeff lucas for the job that he does on bringing you Every Monday, the surveying land surveying hour on America's Web Radio. So you you got your pencil ready there with your your piece of paper. Call Quick Stakes. Order their markers. Are their Quick Stakes today at one eight hundred four three eight zero three eight seven and tell them you heard about them on America's Web Radio. With that being said, it's time to go back to Jeff and. Um, We'll do that right now. And it's back to you, Jeff. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. All right. Well, it's becoming uh, uh, really obvious. We're not going to get through this case uh, this week. But I want to finish setting it up so that uh, next week um, we can uh, maybe wrap this one up. So Dillahay uh, filed her complaint, and then Ms. Gibbs filed her answer. She asserted that her firm had been in her family. Uh, for many years, with no dispute about the boundary line, Mrs. Gibb, uh, Gibbs averred that she had a valid rec- uh, recorded survey depicting the true property lines in her favor. She also claimed ownership of the disputed area by adverse possession. So there is an adverse possession argument in, in here, uh, but the uh, Chancery Court, I believe, ruled on other grounds. So there was a hearing on uh, Dillahay's request for a temporary injunction. It was held on February 6th. Boulder entered uh, the trial court uh, and joined both parties from altering, removing, or damaging the physical and natural evidence and timber located in the disputed area. This disputed area is about 30 acres, okay? They have, they have farmland, um, and generally speaking, uh, Gibbs is to the east of uh, Dillahay. This is hilly country. Uh, uh, Ms. Gibbs' uh, property... Uh, has some flat spots to it, and then there seems to be what they call a hollow uh, or a ravine uh, or a valley, uh, whatever you want to, uh, whatever term you want to use between the two. And then uh, the Dillahays are to the uh, west of Gibbs. They have a common boundary. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Gibbs owns something in the neighborhood of 125 to 180 acres for tax uh, documents, teller, 
and Dillahay owns two tracks in the neighborhood of 60, 65 acres, so she's up there around 120 acres. So we're talking about acres tracks here. But uh, the dispute finally uh, uh, finally comes down uh, eventually when they go to court to an area consisting of about of about 30 acres. So there was a bench trial held June 8th, 9th, and 10th, three-day trial. Um, that's, um, I don't know, that's probably about average for these boundary dispute cases. That can be more. That can be a little less. Um, both parties introduced the deeds and their respective claims on chains of title, the testimony of expert land surveyors, and the testimony of persons familiar with the properties and their own testimony. So that's what we have coming into court. We have the landowners are going to come into court. What they have to say is is uh, is really important. Uh, they have uh, lay witnesses. And what are they going to come in and testify uh, testify about? They're going to testify as to where they remember or where they saw or remember where the true boundary line, the property boundary line, folks. We're not we're not talking about any other kind of line here. In a boundary dispute case, we are talking about property lines, the limits of ownership, the limits of ownership. This is another thing that uh, you know was just a problem with the surveying profession for decades. Uh, following uh, Curtis Brown's uh, books, a boundary control and legal principles and evidence and procedures, where uh, the surveyors were advised to just simply go out and deed stake property or break the sections down over and over and over and over again. The word property was an anathema. Uh, you couldn't say the word property. That was that was taboo. Those were legal questions. But it, it, it should be abundantly clear by now, at least it is for me, because I teach about this stuff, I, I write about this stuff, uh, and now I'm doing a radio program about this stuff. It is abundantly clear that in the vast majority of cases, yes, there is a legal question here. There's an adverse possession question. That's just a that's a that's just a throwaway for these. I mean, that's that not a throwaway. It's a go-to for these attorneys who don't understand the boundary location doctrines. Well, it, they understand adverse possession. Why do they understand adverse possession? Because it's a legal argument. There's usually a statute somewhere that defines the elements of adverse possession. Where are the statutes that define the uh, boundary location doctrines? They don't exist. You have to go dig them up. You have to find them. You have to read them. And where are, they're in these court opinions that we're going over. That's where the boundary establishment doctrines uh, reside. Now, there's a few rules of construction that have been uh, statutorily, which is, uh, what are the rules of construction? Those are the rules for interpreting deeds especially in the face of confusion or dispute over the meaning of the words in the deeds or between two you know, competing deeds or between adjoining uh, property deeds. Um, there's those, you know, the rules of construction uh, have been, in some states, have been statutorily enacted, but by and large, the boundary establishment doctrines have not. So... It, the, Adverse possession is a go-to. It's a go-to. Um, they throw it in there just to cover all the bases. 
But as you're going to see here in this case, if we if if I can ever get on with it, as you're going to see here in this case, that's that's not what that's wasn't the answer to the question. Adverse possession wasn't the answer to the question. Uh, where's the property line? And where the property line is is not a legal question. So that's one of the confusing aspects of surveying, and what the, why so many surveyors to this day are still confused. They've been told that surveying property and surveying property lines is legal work. It's not, and that goes back. That goes back to the litmus test. What the reasonably prudent practitioner. Gathering and evaluating, retracement surveying is gathering and evaluating the best available evidence that the reasonably prudent practitioner would gather and evaluate in like or similar circumstances, weighing that evidence, and then rendering a well-reasoned opinion on the only question open to the surveyor, the factual question of location. And if that is done correctly, the surveyor has done nothing less, nothing less than determining by answering the factual question of location, by determining the limits of the ownership. That's what happens. Uh, you can go stake the deed out according to the title documents. And if you're doing that in this day and age, uh, more than like you, you're probably 99 times out of 100. If you're just going out and staking out the date, just purely math measurement stake out. In this day and age, where we're primarily in retracement as surveyors, the primary work of the boundary surveyors, retracement surveying. If you're just going out there and staking out the date then in 99.9% of the time, you're going to be driving irons in in conflict with existing and established property lines that are on the ground, and you will not be properly, you will not be identifying the limits of ownership because the ownership lines have already been established. And amazingly, some surveyors say, well, I'm protecting their property rights by staking, by staking their deed on the ground. No, you're not. The, the, the uh, title documents are not sacrosanct. The deed, as so many courts have said, the deed is simply a guide to finding the lines on the ground. The deed is not the gospel. And in, and in the vast majority of boundary dispute cases, just like this one, we haven't gotten to it yet, but the title documents must... Con when it comes to boundary disputes, and then we're applying the boundary location doctrines to settle the dispute, and generally, you're doing, if they got a court case, they're doing that in court. Then the title documents are forced to fit what's on the ground, not the reverse. Not the reverse. Might you find a case out there somewhere where the reverse happens? Sure. You might. But that will be um, a mistake on the part of the of the court because that is not what American property law says. The, across all jurisdictions, 
when the law is correctly applied to the facts in the case, what happens is the title documents are forced to fit what's on the ground. They're forced to fit the established property lines that are on the ground, not the reverse. The ground isn't forced fit. Uh, does it is it forced to fit the title documents? How could that be so? How could that be so? Then you are adjudicating people's property rights. Now, if you're in a boundary dispute case, so if you're going to be uh, the two of the parties will be there. What about the other the other three or four or five or six uh, adjoining property owners uh, around this uh, this new property line? Don't they get their day in court? Surveyors can't go out and adjudicate their property their, their property rights. There's there's this thing called the Constitution of the United States. You can't have your uh, your rights adjudicated without due process of law. But surveyors surveyors do it all the time, which is kind of a maddening thing for uh, for the landowners. And and I hear about it a lot. All right, so they brought in the uh, they're going to bring in expert land surveyors. They're going to have. Uh, Testimony of some some old timers are going to come in. You remember old timer? We talked about him a few months back. Old timer is that guy or gal who uh, uh, still lives in the neighborhood and, and knows everything about the boundary lines. And we're going to get the testimony of the parties, of course. The disputed uh, area lies on the it's the western boundary of Gibbs. Gibbs is to the east of Dillahay to the west. It's Gibbs' western boundary and it's Dillahay's uh, eastern boundary. Uh, okay, the Gibbs purchased their property and their farm in 1993, and her deed conveys 159 acres. Tax red records admitted into evidence show that from at least 2003 to 2005, she was paying taxes on 127 acres. However, in 2006, after Mrs. Uh, Dillahay purchased her farm, she was assessed taxes on 182.4 acres. Gibbs introduces uh, her deeds in the chain of title. She had returned to the old home place when she bought her property. She had lived there previously from 1941 to 1954 when her family owned that property before. She was born in 1940. She was born on the, on the place, 1943, and lived and worked with her family on there until they moved away. Abdullah Hay comes in, and she purchases this 120-acre farm to the west of Gibbs, she knows nothing about the property. It was uh, they bought it from a uh, absentee owner who just happened to be a cousin of her husband's. And uh, while they were uh, touring the property, they ended up uh, encountering before purchase. They ended up encountering Mrs. Gibbs and started asking about the boundary lines. And so that's where this case. Uh, is going to go. That's about all we're going to be able to do uh, this week. We're just about out of time. Uh, so we'll pick this up next week. I'll uh, I'll try to get right through the case because I want to, I do want to finish it up. Uh, it proves a lot of points that I've been talking about. And uh, here's David now. Let's see where we are. We about to wrap this thing up, David? Okay. All right. We're good, folks. We'll see you next week. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.